Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Arminta, and Matthias. Welcome to another community episode. It is Michael Houghton here, and I am here with Alva. Alva, how are you getting on? Hey, Michael, not too bad yourself. How is it going on this early morning? I'm very good. And we're actually here to talk about something, I guess, a little bit negative today, Alva. But I guess the purpose here is to try to let people know that we do make mistakes. And when it comes to investing, we make a lot of mistakes and that that's partly okay as long as we learn from it. So I guess we're here to talk about our financial mistakes. And it's a little bit personal. So, you know, we're going to probably sound uh, a little bit stupid at some of the things that we did end up doing. But as I said, it's all about trying to explain to people that, look, we all do make mistakes and that's part of the learning process. So do you want to kick us off and let us know one of the mistakes that you've made over the years when, when it comes to investing? Definitely. Starting with one of the more uh, juicier ones, uh, an MLM scheme, which everybody has probably heard about, multi-level marketing, people who try to sell you stuff and earn a referral fee over that and that over and over again. And effectively, that basically uh, acting like a Ponzi scheme. So this particular one was called Plan B for You. And we're talking probably six years back in the Netherlands. Me as a student, I was renting out a room through Airbnb and I met this woman who was doing this and she was like, oh, this is amazing. And you only have to do uh, 10 seconds of work and you earn passive income through that. And I was like, hey, sounds good. Let's dive into that and see where it's about. So Plan B for You worked in the following way. You had to put in 40 euro to buy yourself a piece of the company or slice effectively and that piece would generate a bit of passive income for you every single month and you had to do minimal work for that as in literally clicking on a bunch of advertisements and every person you would refer would up your passive income level by a little bit uh, and that's where the ponzi pyramid scheme component comes in so i thought hey sounds interesting Almost too good to be true, given the returns. I have no idea exactly what they were giving back then, like uh, as return-wise or they were promising, but that was the essence. So I believe back then, 160 euro, and there uh, I was like, hey, let's let this run. And yeah, there was also this really interesting Facebook group with a couple hundred people who followed this scheme. And they had the most amazing debates in the world on how the business worked and whatnot and the features that would be added to, to it which made for a really interesting kind of like journey for me. So I stayed invested with them maybe for like three, four-ish months. And uh, then I pulled everything out. And I believe a couple of months later, the whole business went down and the owner was uh, sued for fraud and corruption and all kinds of not so nice stuff. But moral of the story is I did completely fall for it. I met a stranger. I dumped 160 euro in there. Um, I tried it out and I was stupid enough to stick with it for like four months and only like a few months short of losing all the money I put in. I've, I know of people who've put in thousands on that platform and lost all of it. And it was really, really obvious what, that this was an MLM scheme. I even convinced one or two of my friends to sign up back then. I not necessarily convinced them as in sign up, but more like, hey, you know, see this might be worth checking out. And me, even then, with investing in the stock market, I was doing with my basic finance knowledge, I fell for it. I mean, I felt I was not cautious enough, didn't do my research well enough, or maybe I did my research, but I was just tempted by, oh, let's try it out and see what happens, and not necessarily just being cautious enough. So I think that would probably be my uh, most embarrassing financial mistake of the last decade. 
How about yourself, Michael? Yeah, I've, I've certainly got something like that, Elva. And uh, I think we'll come back to touching on what we actually learned from it. But uh, for me, it was last year, it was May last year, and I just really wanted to try and find some sort of high high return investment in the cryptocurrency space. And you can already tell that this is uh, <laughs> going down a slippery slope. Uh, but I found a company called Blue Trading. And in fairness, it wasn't just me that got fooled by them. It was thousands of investors as well. But they were promising high returns in the trading game. And they promised investment, uh, they promised returns of around 20% per month. And uh, I quickly fell for that. I put 3000 in and I was actually getting the returns for a long time. And as I was getting the returns, I started putting more and more money in. Diversification went out the window and I uh, yeah, just kept putting more and more in until I had about 20 grand in there. And luckily for me, I realized by about November that year that it was a Ponzi scheme. There wasn't actually any trading happening. And I withdrew all my money. So thankfully, I actually came out in profit. But unfortunately, it wasn't that case for many investors. And I've got no doubt there'll be some listening to this episode that were caught up in that, where come February, they basically claimed that there was a software error and they lost all of the money and investors were basically left with nothing. So it was certainly a hard lesson to learn. I did did warn people and I tried to warn as many people as possible by submitting bad reviews and basically sharing the knowledge that I'd gained. Uh, but even then, it wasn't enough to convince enough people to, to actually get out, which was uh, which was upsetting. Yeah, gotcha. And I get those things happen. And even the smartest, the brightest, or us just simply, you know, we also fall for those tricks. In the end, you see an interesting return. And these companies are amazing in marketing them. And as when you ask me the main lesson I could draw from this myself is I like you know, diving into things and just testing them out. I think that's a skill, that's a habit that's good to have and to go for. But in these situations where maybe yours wasn't as, as obvious as mine in terms of it being an MLM scheme or a Ponzi scheme, but just, yeah, don't do it. Often the red flags are really, really clear from the very beginning. What would your own take be on that, Michael? Yeah, thanks for asking. Over. I think in the case of blue trading, I think this is very common with these scams is you'll find that nine out of 10 things will check out, but it's that one thing that doesn't that needs to raise your suspicion. And what I mean by that is, in the case of Blue Trading, they had an office in Japan. I was actually able to find that office on Google Maps and actually see a sign which said that this this was their office. So they actually physically did have the office or at least had registered one. Everything kind of checked out from that regard. But one thing that didn't check out was that they had like an auditor's review from some South African company and I couldn't find that company on Google, no matter how hard I tried. The email address bounced. The phone number didn't check out. So little things like that. And then when I look, kind of look back, I could see that their supposed uh, verified performance results, they didn't really add up either. And there was just a string of random accounts. So there were little things there that were, I guess, red flags that I dismissed because so many other things checked out. But that was where I should have actually gone, oh, hang on a second, if one thing here doesn't check out, that should be enough for me to not invest in this. It shouldn't be a case where nine things check out, so that's okay. So that was really sort of advice that I would give my past self, if you like, in terms of going about how to actually research these companies. Gotcha. And I think we can also draw one fair comparison in some way, uh, peer-to-peer lending, given that quite a few peer-to-peer lending companies sometimes keep changing up uh, their bank accounts, um, where they're located, the offices, swap around employees, and not to discredit every single peer-to-peer lending company, but I definitely think we can make a fair call that we should 
really do your research extremely well because there have been some, yeah, let's say, interesting comments. Uh, there's one group called Peer-to-Peer -peer Learning Fellows where people really dig into every single number they can find from peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning companies and really you know, call the CEOs up at home and try to kind of like figure out, is this real, is this correct? What is your take on that, Michael? There's definitely a lot of peer-to-peer -peer learning sites coming up that are a little bit fly-by-night. So there definitely is that element where do your research to a large degree. Uh, there has been a couple of platforms that I've stayed clear of just because I haven't seen transparency. So one thing that I would do is go to LinkedIn and see if the CEO is actually listed in LinkedIn and he has genuine uh, connections in there. So that would be like the first thing that I would be doing anyway. But also, yeah, just take your gut instinct as well. If something is too good to be true, then it is, right? It isn't a case where it could be or you may have found the holy grail. And that was certainly my case with my Forex scam where I thought blue trading was something which could lead me to early retirement because I was getting such amazing returns and kind of almost forgot the fact that I was actually putting in real money. It was like I was so blindsided by the fact that I was getting these high returns. I couldn't see the wood through the trees, so to speak. Gotcha. And 20% returns are just simply not realistic for businesses unless they're highly, highly leveraged or highly, highly risk. And I guess at the moment we all see 20% return, 25% or whatever. We have to ask ourselves, how is this possible? How can this business genuinely make this amount and still turn a profit, you know, for that actual owned company? And there might be some companies out there that can actually genuinely do this. And if they can show us how, please show me, I'll happily invest if they can genuinely keep doing this on a consistent basis. But I would say uh, right now, you know, we've covered MLM schemes well enough. I would say let's jump over to a few travel-related finance mistakes. And I've got one that's, well, actually two <laughs> that are quite quite stupid from my side. So uh, to get started, New Zealand, uh, three years back. Michael, you're an amazing home country. You know how expensive it can be. You arrive as a tourist. Well, what did I do? I went over to a bank account, uh, pulled out my credit card. I was like, I want to get some cash. Usually when you select, well, when you take out cash, the ATM will ask you, you know, in which currency do you want to take out uh, the cash? And I was foolish enough to select euros instead of New Zealand dollars. So what happened in that case, the bank charged me the most unfavorable possible interest rate in the world. And then, yeah, I ended up paying probably like 90 euro extra because of the shitty exchange rates I was using and realized that like, I don't know, like a minute afterwards, it was like, hey, wait, this is not right. We took out, I believe, like 500 euro worth of New Zealand dollars. And like, oh, wait, that's so stupid. <laughs> that has not happened to me anymore. Well, on that scheme, but that was just like, oh, uh, why? Uh, extra example, two weeks ago, I was in Spain on the airport uh, taking out cash from the ATM to pay for the bus over there. ATM charges is a three uh, euro 95 fee. And I'm like, yeah, there's no other one around. We have to pay it took out the cash, walked around the corner, another ATM <laughs> on the actual airport, no fees. So minor, but a little bit silly. And yeah, have you ever had something like that yourself, Michael, that you just accidentally clicked the wrong button and that way just threw away 100 euro? Many times, many times. I mean, there was a time a few years ago where I, because I, I earn freelancing largely foreign currency. So there was a time where I was actually, would be consistently going down and taking money up from the ATM. And that was basically how, how I was handling my foreign exchange. This was before the days of transfer wise and so on. So I think for that, though, it's more of a case where you finally do learn a better way to do it and you find a better system. And simple, I mean, I have a, fr a friend of mine who just transferred 60,000 pounds over to euros 
and he didn't use the service like transfer wise. So, I mean, the amount of that would have cost him for that transaction was just crazy. So, you know, start using services like TransferWise or, or other um, products like that, which will save you significant money in terms of exchange fees, because we do get hammered a lot when it comes to front exchange. Yeah, Mike, actually good call on TransferWise. I use it personally myself to handle in all the currencies I've got, which are pounds, uh, New Zealand dollars, euros and dollars, and trade between them whenever I have a need for the specific currencies. So good way to save money, use TransferWise and uh, other alike services. Revolut is another good one. But yeah, I just think using those digital tools, we can save ourselves quite a bit. But I would say from that point, let's jump into our next uh, worst financial mistake. I actually got another interesting travel-related ones, and you're probably going to laugh like this one on Michael. So three years back, I was, well, actually two years, uh, I was in New Zealand and uh, wanted to go traveling and buy a car. So I often tell this story of how we bought a car pretty cheaply and sold it for double in Auckland after traveling, which we did. But it's not the first car we bought that was actually sold, but the second car. The first car we bought, we went to, let's just call it... a semi-shady dealer uh, went over there, uh, paid 2,000 New Zealand dollars in cash for a car. And this car ended up breaking down after like an hour or so of driving. And yeah, mistake from that one was don't buy from shady dealers um, and don't pay in cash for certain large amounts without actually having... Um, a slip of the transaction because you're like, hey, you know, that guy is cheap. You know, let's go through him and in that way get around it. Have you ever done something like that yourself, Michael? Well, we've all done something like that, unfortunately. And I think when you're traveling as well, you become particularly vulnerable because it's easy to be a little bit desperate to do those sort of things. My biggest problem actually, not so much a financial mistake, but I keep writing cars off when it comes to hiring them on holiday. So... A mistake that I made last year is I actually got the, uh, in Ireland, they have a service called Car Hire Access, where you can actually buy the insurance before you go. And you go away on holiday, you rent rent your car. And then if you have a crash or whatever, it's going to be covered. And we were in Croatia and I ended up hiring an eight-seater van and it was a huge van. And I'm not, definitely not a van driver, Alva. Don't, uh, don't make that mistake thinking I am. And within a day, I'd put a big scratch down the side of the van and I went to check the policy and it, my policy only covered cars that were seven seaters, not eight seaters. So it was a case where I didn't have coverage. It was a 1200 euro cost in the end for me because I hadn't read the fine print. So again, if you're taking out travel insurance or any sort of insurance, always read that fine print because it will come back to haunt you when you most need it, which was uh, fairly a fairly expensive lesson to learn. Oh, nice one. It does recall me of the insurance component on the actual fire retreat in 2019. Uh, Matthias managed to slam off one of his rear lights of the car, but he has some kind of German insurance which covers every possible thing in this world. Uh, so he had it completely covered. And then the next car he rented, he slammed off another uh, lamp of that car, another 500 euro repair, but his German insurance covered it. Yay. I guess we can uh, still make a good call on insurances and what you said yourself, Michael, getting insurance for the access. Uh, we always do the exact same when we go on holiday and we get a rental car. Get access uh, insurance and always ignore the actual insurance the company or the hiring company is offering you because they triple charge you and their service is often, um, yeah, not the greatest. So I actually think I have one more travel-related financial disaster. I mean, actually, wait, yeah, we can call this one a disaster. 
So let's set uh, the scene. India 2016 November. Any person who has been to India around this time of the year uh, will know where this is about. In November 2016, the government in India decided to declare a really big chunk of the rupee notes out in the country as illegal because they want to fight money laundering and the black markets, etc. But if you have a society that works 99% on cash and you declare almost all of the cash uh, no longer valid as a payment method and you're a tourist and you arrive in a country and you don't have any cash, what happens? You're screwed. You're, you're stuck. There's not much you can do. And yeah, you cannot really get around it in any possible way. So arrived in this country, all the cash that was available was no longer valid. Credit cards often didn't work given that there's only so much hotels would accept credit card buys and we didn't have any foreign currency with us. So we couldn't exchange it for any other currencies we could potentially have paid with. And the funny thing is all the ATMs, because they did introduce a new currency people could use, in front of the ATMs, they would have lines for like hours and hours uh, for people to get in. So it was kind of yet a situation. Whatever was available was no longer valid. Getting valid money was almost impossible, but you still need to travel. You still need to go to hotels, eat food, and you're on holiday. You want to have fun and see things. But it's getting pretty hard if that's the situation. So... We ended up uh, trying to get cash in all kinds of creative, interesting ways, which were all extremely expensive because they involved having to pay people commission or shipping money over or just using other Bitcoin-related ways of getting money actually in our pockets, like physically to spend it. But moral of the story, this I don't expect this to anybody else to happen, but if you ever happen to go traveling to another country, just take 100 euro, 50 euro, whatever cash with you or USD, if a currency that's, that's valuable abroad that can be exchanged if there's ever a need for it. Uh, that's the main lesson uh, we could have learned from that point. And our holiday uh, ended up being three times as expensive because uh, of the lack of uh, currency we could get. But yeah, that's another interesting travel story uh, money-wise that's I mean, not necessarily 100% our fault. It did happen and it did cost us a lot of money. Yeah, that's great advice, Elver. And I certainly did the same thing when I went to Sri Lanka last year. I just carried an extra 100 US dollars just on me, just in case. And sure enough, it did actually come in handy, or at least it wasn't a hundred a hundred US dollar note. It was a whole lot of single um, notes, and it certainly did make a big difference. Yeah, exactly. Just enough to buy yourself out of any situation if there's a need for it—a taxi, a ride home, whatever. Just enough along those lines. Anyway, I've got one more financial mistake, but I'm gonna uh, leave that for last uh, because I just want to ask Michael: Do you have any more that you would feel like sharing with the audience? I've got one more, Elva, and it happened to me only about six weeks ago. I've been looking for tax-efficient investments, and I decided on a whim to invest in the Football Index, which is a gambling product in the UK. And basically, they claim that you can basically buy the football players. I know nothing about football, Elva. I couldn't tell you the first thing other than knowing a couple of the players based on almost celebrity status more than anything. And I decided, being an index, that I would buy the top 50 players and basically hold them and see what happened. But I made the mistake of not reading the fine print. And unfortunately, with the football index is when you do buy the shares, you earn dividends through the players when they score goals and things like this, which is all well and good. And I'm certainly not knocking the football index. I think if you knew your stuff, it could potentially work. But as a buy and hold strategy, it wasn't great for two reasons. Firstly, the shares themselves, after three years, basically become null and void. So if you don't sell them within three years, then you basically lose that money. And secondly, the problem is is that they charge a 2% commission on any sales. So you're in a situation where 
even when you sell them, you're then going to lose 2%, which is a pretty big chunk when it comes to an actual share market. And thirdly, there was no liquidity in the market. So when you actually went to sell, it could take up to a week or two weeks to actually sell because there wouldn't always be buyers for the shares. So I ended up losing a tiny little bit of money on that. Uh, I actually realized my mistake after about a month and pulled out. Thankfully for me, again, the pound had strengthened so much against the euro by the time that I sold out that I ended up actually making money through the exchange rate. But it was a situation where I kind of learned my lesson fairly quickly. And I think with a lot of these things, Elva, it's when we try and take shortcuts that it seems to ultimately cost us money, or at least when we're underprepared in the case of the travel schemes. So it's certainly a case where preparation and not trying to take shortcuts does seem to pay dividends in the long run. But uh, yeah, I would love to hear your last one. So let, let us know. Yep, last financial mistake. Uh, bought a brand new laptop, um, 700 euro, and threw a bottle of water over it uh, the next day after. And we destroyed the entire laptop and had to buy a brand new one. Uh, solution on that one there's this cup out there on youtube which uh, just cannot follow for um and i bought that one so now i cannot spill any drinks over my laptops anymore and hopefully not do that again anyway that was the last uh well semi-financial clumsy mistake we've got to add uh, to this list if you've got any uh, interesting financial mistakes yourself or just things that happened in life let us know in the Facebook group via an email, whatever. If we get enough responses, we can maybe even do a second episode on this one with uh, listener feedback and yeah, go through some more uh, interesting and juicy mistakes. Because in the end, we all make them, but they're funny to listen to. So I hope you enjoy this episode and see you soon. Hey, Matthias, do you think there are not enough financial independence Facebook groups yet? Yes, there's definitely a shortage in financial independence Facebook groups. That's why we want to create another one. And the real reason is that we want to get some feedback on our episodes to have a conversation with our listeners, um, to follow on the topics. And you might also have some questions around our content. Gotcha. And also, we've been talking with more of you guys at meetups, on Reddit, in Facebook groups, the Fire Europe retreat, obviously, we organized. And this is, in the end, the main reason why we started the whole podcast project, to talk to guys like you, uh, learn more from you, case studies, answer questions, and like hopefully all grow and learn from that together in the end and become stronger, smarter, and hopefully also richer people. So, you know, Matthias, say I'm interested in this. Where do I find this Facebook group? Yeah, just go to your Facebook app and type in FI Europe Podcast or just click in our show notes. There's a link for the Facebook group or go to our website. There's also a link. So yeah, just type in FI Europe Podcast. See you in the group. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.